Father, uh, I just uh, just say, wow, thank you for the excitement that I sense that's here, Lord. I thank you for how excited I am to uh, begin this study and to be teaching this book. Lord, I know it's a, a book that a lot of people uh, don't understand. They think it's confusing. I know there's discussions and debate in many circles as to how to even go about the process of interpreting it. Lord, tonight we just simply say, please, may you be the teacher, not Jim. May you be the one who, who opens our eyes and our ears and our hearts to these truths. Lord, I just open my mouth. I just want to only share what you've shown me and what's coming from you. I thank you that we're going to be using Scripture to interpret Scripture throughout this study. And so, Lord, I thank you for the fact that your word is going to teach this book and not me. So, Lord, as we do this, this study, as we begin this study of Revelation, we thank you for the fact that we have this privilege to be able to do that. And, you're, and, and your spirit will help us understand it. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer. Lord, if you choose to come get us before we finish the study, I'm pretty sure that's okay with all of us in the room. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 3, and we're going to take some time to break this whole section down. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, I'm going to just start right off by telling you there's different ways that people have over the years tried to interpret or break down the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to get into all the different views. Uh, I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Wherever the Bible is, it's very clean, clear and plain in this literal interpretation. I just go with that interpretation. There are those who try to say that this book is allegory and spiritual symbolism and all this kind of stuff. All throughout scripture, that prophecy that has been fulfilled all the way through, it has always been a literal interpretation. I believe that what we're going to see here is a literal, literal, literal interpretation as well. And so understand that as we take the time in this study to break this down, that's how we're going to be taking a look at it. There are going to be things we'll understand. There's going to be things that we're not going to know for sure. We're going to, that's going to be okay, and I'll show you in just a little bit why. But the author's book is very clearly John, which is the brother of James. You know, the sons of Zebedee. This is who the author of this book is. But it's actually, Jesus is the author of this book. John's the one who wrote it down. Uh, as, as you see very clearly here, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show him, to show his servants what must soon take place. We'll come back to the soon in a little bit. But... That term ser servant, actually in the Greek, is a picture of a slave, but it's a neat picture of a slave. It's a picture of a slave that willingly became a slave. Now, back in the days of uh, Judaism and all, they had a way set up that if a slave, and remember had the, the year of Jubilee, and every seven years the slaves would be set free. If they wanted to re-up, they could and all that. Well, if a slave decided that, you know what, I would rather stay as your servant the rest of my life than go out and be free, but possibly be poor... I, I, you've treated me well. I just want to just stay and be your servant the rest of my life. If that was their desire, they actually would go to the temple and somebody would take an awl, if you will, and pierce their ear, sticking it to the doorpost of the temple, and stick the awl through their ear, make a hole in their ear, symbolically of saying that they had willingly become a servant to their master for the rest of their life. It was a willing slave. Not a forced slave, but a willing slave. This is the word you see here. 
So when we talk about his servants, show his servants what must soon take place, it's talking about those of us who have willingly said, my life belongs to Jesus Christ. Hopefully you're not a Christian because, well, it's the best thing out there. Hopefully you're not a Christian because, well, as the way I was raised and I really don't have a choice, my parents will be mad if I go in either direction. Hopefully you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you are willingly saying, my life is his. He can stick an all in my ear if he wants to. I'm not going anywhere. My life is his. And that's the picture of that word servant there that, that we see in the Greek. And it says he made it known by sending his angel. Whenever you see the word angel, let's just assume for right now that the word means messenger. Now, there are going to be some times that it's clear that it is an angel and with the description of the being that, that is there in this book of Revelation. But the word angel, or angelos, is actually translated messenger. And we're going to see that when we get into the study of the different churches and to the angel in the church at Ephesus or the angel in the church of Pergamos. But most often when this word is used, and a lot of times when it's just transliterated angel, it's really meaning messenger. And so in this section right here, who is it talking about? All right, it said he made it known by sending his messenger to his servant John. Who was the messenger? Don't be afraid. Jesus. Here in this passage, now definitely in this study you're going to see angels at time come alongside of John and explain some things. But as the, at the very beginning, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he brought and he made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you'll see when we get to it next study, where John was on the Isle of Patmos, and while he was in the Spirit, Jesus himself shows up. And so in this passage here, in this section, we see that this angel, or this messenger, is Jesus. Alright? Now, John wrote this while he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, in around 95 A.D. There are some people that think it was written in the 60s A.D. because they try to do a what we call a historical interpretation, where they think that everything that is said in the book of Revelation happened... In the, around the time of the year 70 A.D. with the Romans coming and destroying Jerusalem and all. And so in order to make that fit, they had to have John writing it during the time of Nero as emperor. But actually, scripture uh, references here are very clear that this happened later in John's life. And actually, we have through church history and the, the part of church history and the, the church fathers we respect. As there were a few that were church fathers like Origen who were proven to be heretics and stuff like that. But the, the church fathers that we respect, they all clearly understood that this was written by John near the end of his life around 95 A.D. During the time of Domitian as emperor of Rome. There were, Nero was from, if you're curious about this stuff and like to look this stuff up, Nero was from 54 to 68. Vespasian came next from 69 to 79 A.D. And then Domitian was from 81 to 96 A.D. And John had been imprisoned, if you will, on the Isle of Patmos because of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will come up later. Actually, let's just take a time to turn there. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. You'll see how we get where we get a lot of this. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so he's on this island. It's actually a, it was a, it was a prison camp, if you will. 
And depending on how they wanted to treat you, it could have been, you could have had some freedom, you could have had no freedom. Uh, what we understand from church tradition is that actually because of his late stage, he's probably in his 80s at this time, um, they treated him pretty good even though he was imprisoned. He was just not allowed to go back onto the mainland, if you will, and have any encounters that way. But people would still be able to come visit him, and he had freedom while he was there. And... Uh, we see here that while he was there, Jesus shows up and he tells him to write this book. So who was the book written to? The seven churches. It was written to the seven churches. That's a good start. The seven churches there in Asia Minor. And by the way, these seven churches in Asia Minor, they knew who John was because he had actually pastored in that area in Ephesus for, for, for quite a while. He was really well known. And actually, uh, history has it that during the later parts of his life, he actually was so... Let's just say he was so crippled by being old that they had to carry him around to go to churches. And you ever notice when you read a lot of his writings, especially 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, how does he describe Christians in those books? You ever noticed? My little children. You ever notice that? He says that a lot. Well, that's because he was an old man at that time. And he had just a grandfatherly heart toward the Christians and the brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why he would say, my little children, dear children. He was an old man at this time. And so he was punished for his faith in Christ. And he was banished to this Isle of Patmos and all. But I want to show you, if you'll go with me to Revelation chapter 10, that it's not only to the seven churches, but it's also to a much wider audience. Somebody read for us verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So is this book only for the seven churches in Asia Minor? No, it's also for many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Let me just tell you a quick little something about your God. Um, you could be in a situation where you think, well, how could anything good come of this? And here he is, late in his life, very crippled, exiled on a prison camp, island, and yet God has him be the messenger to all peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Think about the fact we've got a group of people here all crammed up in a living room and other rooms surrounding to listen to what God said to John while he was on that island. And this is 2,000 years ago. Isn't that cool? So I want you to be encouraged by the fact that in our situations, because we want to know how everything's going to work out. Whenever situations arise that look like men, man, this is the end. Nothing good. Will, uh, how, uh, not, uh, everything's just falling apart. You've you got to remember who God is. He can take even what you think is the end, and He can do it for His glory, amazing and mighty things. So just be encouraged about that. This book is not only to the seven churches of Asia Minor, it's to all of us. It's to all of us. Alright? Now, He then gives us a promise. He said, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and takes to heart what is written in it. 
I want you to look at that again. Look closely at what it says. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And we'll get to it a little bit later because the time is near. Jesus tells us to read the book and to take it to heart. Does he say that we're going to understand it all? I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be parts that I'm going to say, here's some options as to what this might mean. We really don't know. And the reason is, we're studying prophecy. Prophecy has been written by God to show us what will take place, yet the best way to interpret prophecy and to really understand what it means is to understand that prophecy was really mainly written for those who would be alive at that time. It could be an encouragement to us to know that the Bible shows that God's going to win, yet at the same time, how it all plays out and what some of these things mean make no sense until you're alive at that time. As I've referenced, and I'm going to show you some Old Testament passages that might help you see that, but as i referenced before, the prophecies about the birth of Jesus said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, right? But he was going to be a Nazarene. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, out of Egypt I have called my son. And for all those years as they were waiting for the promised Messiah, and they believed these prophecies were about the coming Messiah, they would argue over, well, how in the world could he be born in Bethlehem, but be a Nazarene, but come out of Egypt? Is he going to be born at three places all at the same time? That's impossible. And they would argue over, well, that can't be. This doesn't make any sense. But if you happen to be alive at the time or after the birth of Jesus, we come now to realize that he was from Nazareth. That's where his mom and dad were from. And he went to Bethlehem because of the census, and that's where he was given birth to. Oh, look, because of the fact that they tried to kill him and all the babies at that time, he had to go hide in Egypt for a time until God said, now come out of Egypt and go back to Nazareth. So guess what? Prophecy was fulfilled, and it made a whole lot more sense at the time it was fulfilled. Keep that in mind. There will be some things in here that will be pretty clear. There's going to be other things that we're going to say, we're going to have to just understand that one if it happens while we're still alive. Okay? Are you good with that? Are you going to move? I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you this means this and that. I'm going to give you suggestions sometimes as to some possibilities. Other times I'm just going to say I don't know. And I've shared this with some of you, but I want you to turn with me to Psalm 22. I think it's the absolute best illustration of how to interpret prophecy. Psalm 22. And this Bible study will be a lot shorter since my notes just blew all the way here. All right. All right. Thank you. Now look at Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. Most of you have studied Bibles. Who wrote this? David did. Listen to what he says here now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, and you, our fathers, put their trust they trusted and you delivered them, and they cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. 
Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now put yourself in the time that when David wrote this, you understand that David would write laments every now and then. He would a lot of times went through tough stuff, running for his life, and people always trying to get him and having him put to death, sometimes even his own sons. Yet, if you were alive at the time of David and he wrote this, you'd say, hang on, David. When, when were all your bones out of joint? Uh, when did they pierce your hands and your feet? What's this casting lots for your clothing? It wouldn't have made any sense at that time. Yet, let's say you took the Bible to heart. Let's just say you read it and you took it to heart. What that simply means is, put it in here. Read it. Study it. Just put it in there. Doesn't mean you have to understand it. Just get it in there. And then you happen to be alive at the time of Jesus while he's being crucified. And all of a sudden you hear, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think you're going to think? Your brain's going to go, wait a minute. That lines up with what I read in Psalm 22, if you will. And then all of a sudden you see these guys circling around him and casting lots for his clothing and piercing his hands and his feet and how he says, I thirst. And you think about my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and how he was hung naked. We always put a little cloth over him there for, you know, I mean, his, you know, have the picture of him on the cross and he'll be in church, you know. So, but he was naked. I can count on my bones. You would have all of a sudden started to realize, wait a minute, this is what David was writing about and the prophecy would make sense. What I want you to understand is as we study the book of Revelation, it is prophecy. There's going to be parts that we're not going to be quite sure what it means. But if we're alive when those things are happening and they're starting to happen in rapid succession in the same way, when you see something happen in the world, you're going to go, that lines up with the book of Revelation. And as we do this study, by the way, we're not going to be just looking at Revelation, but and literally almost all the other verses that tie in with it from the Old Testament and the New. And so with that in mind, I hope to have you just get this book and the surrounding passages in your heart. So that as we continue, if Jesus tarries and things begin to continue to escalate, and they will, as you're watching the news, as you hear what's going on, you'll be able to say, ooh, that's just what Revelation was talking about. Do you understand the difference? We're not here to try to figure it all out. We're here to understand what can be understood, and we're going to leave the rest to God, and it will make sense if He has us alive at that time. The problem with this too much is we want to figure it all out, and we wrestle with each other over whose interpretation is the best. I don't want to do that in here. All right? There might be some people in this room who might not see some of the things that I point out. You might say, well, I think it's this. Our purpose is not to wrestle over whose interpretation is correct. I believe what I'm going to share with you is what God's opened my eyes to see. I'm going to try to use scripture to, to, to go there. But if you disagree, that's okay. That's all right. The purpose of what we're to be here for is to read this book and to take it to heart. So, before you close Psalm 22, if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, just put a little mark next to verse 1. Or circle that number if you want. And then circle or mark verses 6, 7, and 8. And then mark or circle verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. The reason why I want you to do that is, is who knows, you might have an opportunity someday 
to share with somebody from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip's led by the Spirit to leave Samaria, head south down the desert road to go from Jerusalem to Gaza. And as he's on his way, he sees the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in a chariot and reading a scroll of Isaiah. And the Spirit says, go over to the chariot. And then he says, do you understand what you're reading? And, and the eunuch says, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And then he asks him this question. He says, tell me. Um, he's reading Isaiah 53. And as the sheep before her shears is silent, so he, he does not open his mouth. And he was bruised and beaten for our transgressions. And he says, who was Isaiah talking about? Was he talking about himself? Or somebody else. In other words, this doesn't sound like this happened to Isaiah. And Philip was able to show him from there and begin from there about who Jesus was. And he was able to baptize him. Now, the reason I had you mark that is, is you never know. The Spirit of God might have you come across somebody. And you might they might be studying Psalm 22. And you have the opportunity to begin from here and to show them that this is talking about Jesus. Alright? Don't say, let me get Jim. If you do that, I'll smack you. <laughs> My job is to equip you to be able to do the work of the ministry. Don't expect a paid professional to do it. Alright, let's go back to Revelation. Any questions about that? Blessed are those who read it and take it to heart. Know this book. Go right ahead. The, I, the Psalm 22 part? 500. All I know is, is it was hundreds of years before... Uh, Jesus even came on the scene. 538. It was 538 was when Psalm 22 was written. Look at that, he's got a good study Bible with 538 BC. So, yeah, yep. Which is actually a very good question to ask because it leads to another point. It's a long time between that prophecy and when it actually happened, wasn't it? You're going to see that as we get to a little bit later on what we're supposed to be looking at here. So, you make sure I got the right page in order here. We're good. All right, now at the same time. Not only does this, the reading of this book come with a promised blessing, it comes with a warning. Go to Revelation 22, and let me just give you the warning as well. Revelation 22.7, and also Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Somebody read Revelation 22.7. All right, now look at verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy in this of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't read the book, there's some bad plagues. You don't want them. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, we're going to be getting to that when we come to that part of the study. We're not going to get bogged down in, what does that mean, lose your salvation? We're going to get into all that when we get there. Right now, I just want you to understand, this is a very, very important book to God, is it not? Amen. I mean, hopefully you understand, you're blessed if you read all the Bible. But this is the only book that says you have an extra blessing if you read it and take it to heart. It's very, very important. This book is the culmination, the pinnacle, if you will, of the scriptures. It actually ties a lot of things from Genesis all the way through come together in this book and make final sense. We'll get into a lot of those, what they are in our study, but I just want you to understand, don't say, well, I believe most of Revelation, but I chuck the other parts. Remember the scripture says what? 
<laughs> don't take any parts away. Yeah. If you're to say, I believe all this, but I don't believe that, you're taking parts away. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't feel like you have to understand it either. Just be willing to take it to heart. Alright? So let's deal with this, the time is near stuff. Alright? There are two phrases here in verse 1 and in verse 3. In verse 1 it says, He's showing His servants what must soon take place. And then at the end of verse 3 it says, The time is near. How long ago was this written? Over 2,000. <laughs> yeah, a long time. It was written in 95 A.D. This is now 2009, you math majors. How many years has that been? Huh? 1900. Yeah. 1900 years later. Now, we got two options then. Jesus was wrong, right? Or maybe soon and near don't mean what we have thought soon and near to meet. I'm going to go with B myself, okay? I think B's good. I think if someone's going to make a mistake, it's probably going to be me, not Jesus. And so what you need to do is take some time to really take a look at this word soon first. In the Greek, this word soon is where we get our word tachometer from. And here in the Greek, it's entakos, all right? Um, the tachometer measures what? Hmm? RPM, the revolutions per minute. It measures the quickness of something happening, right? The tachometer doesn't tell you how soon something is going to happen. It just tell you, tells you what's happening and how soon it's happening while it's happening, correct? This is really what this word means. A better translation might be the word speedily, quickly. Now again, it's not talking between now and then it'll be quick. It's talking when it happens, it is going to happen fast. You understand? And we're going to get into a lot of that stuff, and you're going to, again, hopefully in time, start to begin to see. Let me just touch on something. Uh, actually, we'll get to that. I don't want to run ahead of myself too much here. We'll hold off on that one. We'll, we'll get to that maybe a little bit later for some time tonight. All right? In other words, the events of this book will take place in a short period of time. Once they begin, they will speedily take place. Let me give you an example of what, what it means. Again, I'm going to use Scripture all the time to interpret Scripture. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, as you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 3, let me kind of set the stage for you. Eli is the priest. He's not a really great priest. He's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are wicked young men. They serve in the temple area as well. And they, unfortunately, have been sleeping with a lot of the women that come to worship. They are at the temple. Eli knows about it. He says to his sons, you guys are bad. But he doesn't do anything about it. He just kind of acts like... Hey boys, you better knock that off. Boys will be boys. And he ignores it, in a sense. He, he tells them they shouldn't do it. But he doesn't do anything about it. And so now, God sends a prophecy, and we're not going to turn there, or have you read it, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a prophecy. A man of God comes, in verse 27, to Eli and says to him, here's what the Lord says. And he then brings his judgment on Eli. And he says that you are going to be judged for this, your sons are going to be judged for this. They're, you're not going to have any descendants. There are males of yours who live to their old age for the rest of time. This is my judgment on you. And then God says to him through this prophet, Oh, and the way you'll know that this prophecy is going to come true is, 
both of your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are going to die on the exact same day. And when they die on the same day, that's the way you know that I'm bringing judgment on you and your family. Okay? Now, in chapter 3, we know uh, at this point, the very famous passage where God calls Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the, the child that was prayed for and prayed for, and God finally provided him. And this woman, this lady who had been praying, she said what? Lord, if you finally give me a child, I will give him back to you. And she did. After she would weaned him, she puts him into service in the temple. And he's there. The Lord calls to him, and he keeps thinking it's Eli calling him. He keeps going to Eli and says, did you call me? And Eli says, no, I didn't. Go back to bed. And then again, well, now finally Eli realizes God must be calling Samuel. So he tells Samuel, go back, and next time you hear a voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. All right, and so he just does at the end of verse 10, he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now look at verses 11 through 14. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hear it tingle. At that time, when I do this, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke of against his family from the beginning to the end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, look closely at what he says here to Samuel. It says, at that time, I'm going to carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family. And then you see that little phrase there, from beginning to the end? In other words, what it's saying here, the better translation might be, when I start it, I'll finish it. It's going to happen swiftly. I crank it up, I'll bring it to completion. Well, if you're to take the time and read on in chapter 4, you see the ark is captured... And while this battle is going on, which it's captured, in verse uh, 11, the ark of the God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They both died on the same day. Now look at the next verse, verse 12 of chapter 4. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from battle, the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived there, it was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart... His heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he couldn't see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army had suffered, has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. And he had, had led Israel for 40 years. God's prophecy to him was, I'm going to bring a judgment on you and your family. Oh, and then he told Samuel, you go tell Eli when I start it, it's going to happen like that. And did it not happen that way? And the same day that he hears about his two sons being put to death, he dies that same day. This is the picture of what we see back here in Revelation chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we're going to be reading about in this study is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his willing servants what will take place speedily when it begins. The stage is being set. The time is near. Remember, he told Samuel, at that time, when I do it, 
it's going to be quick. Donald Gray uh, Barnhouse has an incredible quote here that I want to read to you. He says, In our day, we see the furniture of Bible prophecy being moved into place on the stage of world history. The curtain is ready to be drawn. This shall come to pass in God's moment. Then all that is written in the book of Revelation will come to pass exactly as it is written, and it shall come speedily. I love that picture, and we're going to kind of keep that picture through this study. He said the furniture is being set for this play, if you will. The curtain's about to be drawn. You, you, you know when you've been involved in a drama, you know there's a certain time that it's showtime, and curtain goes up. But before that, you're getting everything in place. You're making sure the lights are ready, and you're making sure that the, 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 the people's makeup is being done, and the costumes are set, and you're getting the people in their seats, and the cars are being parked. But at a certain point, it starts. Well, what we're going to be dealing with in the study of Revelation is we're going to be taking a look at all the different pieces of furniture that are being put in place for this final consummation of the end of the age. And one of them right now, and I'm going to touch on this right now, is the nation of Israel. The fact that they even exist, folks, you cannot deny this is a large piece of the furniture being put back in place. And this is a great reason why there's been so much confusion over this book for all these years. You see, for almost 2,000 years of the whole age or the history of the church, there has been no Israel. And so all the time, whenever we read about Israel, and especially as we see a lot about Israel in the book of Revelation, the interpreters of the Bible would say, well, there is no Israel, so this must mean the church. And they spiritualized everything, and they just say, whenever it talks about Israel, it's talking about the church, and all the promises for Israel are now being fulfilled in the church. And as you're going to see, there is a big distinction between the church and the nation of Israel all throughout Scripture. And we're living in the age of the church, and the Bible says when the last Gentile has come in, the church age will have come to a close or conclusion. And God had already decreed back in Daniel 9, and we'll get to a lot of these in our study, but back in Daniel 9, he'd already decreed 77s for the nation of Israel. And 69 of those sevens have already occurred. And then God put Israel on hold, if you will, had the church age, and there's one seven left. And when it kicks in, it's all we're going to read here is going to happen very, very fast. Now, for those of us who are part of the church who will not be here during that time period, we need to really be paying close attention to chapters 1, 2, and 3, though, because that is where God deals with the church. And we're going to see the importance of really understanding His message to the churches as well, because that applies to us. It's also important for you to know the book of Revelation and what's going to go on as well for those things, because what is our role our role is to be messengers. Our role is to be those who share these things with people. And we know that there's a judgment coming. Wouldn't it behoove us to warn them? So it will help us to do this study to know what's going to happen. But this section here where it says um, it's going to soon take place, actually in the Greek it means when it takes place, it's going to happen like that. The time is what? Time is near. The time is near. Now, what I want to do is not only talk to you about how the stage is being set and how we're going to look at what pieces are in place or being put in place in the study, but these prophecies are open for us now for understanding. 
They haven't always been. And I'm going to show you scripturally what I mean by that. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing this study. These prophecies haven't always been open for interpretation or understanding. They are now. So don't anybody say, well, it's just a confusing book. No. The Bible says the man with the Spirit understands the things of the Spirit. The man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. And so I want you to go with me back to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. By the way, because of how much material there is, I'll get going and teaching and preaching. And if you have any questions, please feel free to raise your hand, ask, repeat something, slow down. Don't let me just keep going if you, if you want to ask a question. Look at Daniel chapter 12. What does the heading in your Bible say? Yeah, the end times, huh? At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, again, talking about that time that's to come, the Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found and written in the book, will be delivered. This is talking about the nation of Israel. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. We'll deal with that in our study. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because of the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Here Daniel has been given prophecies about the end. He shares them. He writes them down. But while he's writing them down, he says, Hey, could you explain this to me? This, this doesn't make any sense. What is this? And he's told, not going to happen in your lifetime. Seal up the words of the prophecy. It won't be opened until when? Time of the end. Go to me to Revelation chapter 22. Somebody read verses 7 through 10. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and wish your brothers the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. That's good. Look what he's told in verse 10. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy, because the time is near. 
why would you think he's told the time is near, even though it's been 1900 years? He was told 1900 years ago not to seal up the words of this prophecy. Can anybody tell me why it is open now, not closed up, and why now it's described as the time is near? Any ideas? Speculations? Go ahead. Well, since Christ came, he fulfilled his part. The stage is being set now. Okay, that's that's one piece of the puzzle. Christ has come. The stage is being set. Keep going. So what does it mean to close up the prophecy? mean that it's been fulfilled? No, nope. to close it up means you're not going to understand it. Sealed. We have the Holy Spirit. Very good. Very good. Right. We have the Holy Spirit now indwelling us to help us understand the things said by God. Remember back in John 16, when the Spirit comes, He will remind you of everything that I've said. He will teach you. He'll guide you. He'll open your eyes to these things. We have the Spirit of God within us now. And that's why John is told that this prophecy is now open. It's unsealed, if you will. The Spirit of God lives within those in the church, if you will. And they are able to understand it. You will soon see it is the same prophecy that he was he gave Daniel. Daniel was given some about what was going to be happening in his time, but what we were Daniel was dealing with there at the end of chapter eleven into chapter twelve was talking about the tribulation period for the nation of Israel, and he it didn't make any sense, and that's why he was told, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Just write down what I told you to write down. It'll have a reason for why I had you write it, but it's not for you. You're going to go sleep with your fathers." This isn't going to happen until the time of the end. And as you're about to see in this study, and like I say, if you have to miss a week by being here, please go to the website and, and catch up. Every week we're going to be really breaking down sections of Revelation, and we're going to be showing you not only with Scripture, but also what's happening in our world today, how the pieces of the furniture for the last days, of the last of the last days, are all being put in place. Folks, we may, I wasn't just joking when I prayed this at the beginning, we may not see the end of this Revelation study because how rapidly the pieces of the last stage, if you will, or the last days are being put into place. Things are happening rapidly. Uh, just to give you a reference, uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling in the last days to be a pain in the rear, if you will, to all the nations on the earth. <coughs> Tell me that's not happening right now. All the governments in the whole world are trying to get together to determine how to divide Jerusalem. And who's supposed to get it? And then you get proud, staunch little Israel saying, we'll make our own decisions. Guess what's going to happen, folks? It's going to come to a climax. There's either going to be a war, or there's going to be a false Christ who comes in and makes a peace treaty. And you're about to see, the Bible says that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Or it could be both happen, but all things are starting to come into place. So, the value of doing this study is, is, is it's going to be, start to make a lot more sense. To those of you that took it with me seven years ago, Revelation is going to make a lot more sense to you today than it would seven years ago. One, hopefully you're growing in your understanding of the relationship with the Lord, and being able to understand Scripture and recognizing His voice as He teaches you. And two, a lot more pieces of that puzzle have been put into place, and they make more sense today than they did even seven years ago. Any thoughts? Questions? Are you overlo overloaded already? We just did three verses. Yeah. <laughs> Your first. Mm -hmm. Chapter 1 or chapter 22? 22. Uh-huh. 
Who was that angel? We don't know. Okay. All we know is there's an angel, and John's so amazed, he falls down at his feet to worship him. And the angel says, get up. Only worship God. What's interesting is that's not the first time you see John do that in this study either. He's overwhelmed so many times by what he's seen. I mean, let's, let's just deal with a couple of things. Let's just say Daniel saw some visions of what it was going to be like in the last days. Can you imagine how chaotic that must have seemed to him? Imagine being Daniel and seeing a vision of a 747. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> Daniel probably would have written something like this. I saw this great bird with wings of steel and it roared like a lion. Right? Yeah. Wasn't that what he would have written? Uh-huh. He had no other way to put it into words. So a lot of these things that he, they see, it could be end time stuff. We're going to see as we get into all that. But which angel this is, we don't know him by name. It might be Michael. It could be Gabriel. We don't know. It could just be another angel that's been used to God. He's got thousands and tens of thousands of them. So. And a lot of them have specific roles, which will become clear in the study of Revelation as well. Any other thoughts, questions? The questions are good. They help me understand whether or not you're getting this stuff. Just a comment. I took this study this past year. Um, Carolyn Mason was the facilitator, and she said that treat it as a love letter. There's a lot of things that are freaky and can be scary, but it's God's last warning. Turn to me, turn to me. And that sort of helped me. And also um, getting overwhelmed wanting to figure it out, but not from the proud perspective of the knowledge, but just wanting the intimacy, and what God said to me was, I will reveal to you exactly what you need to know for this day, to speak my word to whoever comes in your path, and that is a was like a release for me, I didn't have to have it figured out to be more intimate with him, just be willing to let him show me the little bits, yep. I needed to know for who was going to cross my path. That's it. So do me this favor. At least read the rest of chapter 1 for next week. But read it slowly. Don't just read it and say, I did my reading. Read it two or three days in a row. Spend some time just kind of letting it sink in. Make yourself a couple of notes of some questions you might want to ask for when you get here next time or some things or some things that God showed you. I would like this. Today I just did a lot of talking to set the stage and lay the foundation. I'd like this to be a discussion a little bit more when we get back together next week. And we'll begin to chew on this book together. Alright? And trust me, there are, there are people out there that could teach this book way better than I could. But I believe God's told me to do it, so He's got a reason why. And that's what we're going to do. Yes, ma'am? I'm thinking too that it's, it's actually comforting to know that he didn't give us a spirit of fear. So therefore this is not, we're not to be afraid of this, but we're just to be prepared. I mean, that's... Yep. Years ago, um, Southern Baptist Convention was in Phoenix, Arizona and since uh, at the time I was at First Baptist in the Atlantic and they were covering my plane ticket and my rental car and everything to go out to the Southern Baptist Convention. We realized since it's in Phoenix, it's our chance to take the whole family and go to the Grand Canyon. And my wife got real excited and she started planning and we saved up and we had an incredible vacation. We went to the convention, we stayed with friends in, in the Phoenix area, and then we took a couple of weeks of just traveling all around that area. We went up to the Grand Canyon, we did the South Rim, we did the North Rim, which by the way, to get from the South Rim to the North Rim is a 300 mile drive to get to the other side. There's no bridge. 
And uh, yeah, we tried to jump it, but Evil Knievel was, wasn't around at the time. But uh, a lot of part of what we did as well, though, to get to the South Rim, she reserved this train ride. I don't know if you know it. There's a little town called Williams, which is south of the Rim. And you go there, and they have a Wild West show. And it's funny, and it's really cool. And then you get on these old-fashioned trains, and then the guys that did the Wild West show play guitars and sing old, you know, country, you know, cowboy songs as you ride. And it takes you literally up to the South Rim, drops you off, you stay for as long as you want, and then at a certain time, you get on the train, and you ride back. Now, Becky and I knew, because it was a part of the package, that the train was going to be robbed on the way back. By those same guys that were playing songs at the beginning and doing the show, but on the way back, about a mile or so outside of the town where you get back, they literally come up on both sides of the train with their guns blowing and riding on their horses, and they got masks on now, their bandanas, and they come and they stop the train, they jump on it, and that's how they collect their tips. <laughs> for doing the show and singing for us, the way they get their tips is they rob the train. Now, parents all know about it. It's on the brochure. We decided for the fun of it, let's not tell our kids. <laughs> Just to see what their reaction would be. We have it on video. <laughs> it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm trying to laugh. I'm saying, look, have fun with this. And I'm trying to give my kids money to, to give up. They're bawling. They're, they're like crawling up in our laps. They're, they're, all three of them are sobbing like terror. You know, it would have been a lot more fun if we had told them it was going to happen. Don't you think? And that's what Jesus does for us. We could get so freaked out with what's going on in the world in the news today. But you don't have to. See, because we're going to talk about the rapture in this study. I believe the rapture is here, clearly described in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to show you why. Not just because I like that idea of us being taken out before then. I'm going to show you why. In a, and that's going to be a very deep study as to why a pre-trib rapture. We're not just going to just say, well, I believe that. I'm going to show you a lot more scriptures than you've ever seen as to why a pre-trib rapture. But it'll be a lot less scary if you know what's coming next. Right? And so that's what I want you to see. I'm glad you brought that up. I want this to be that kind of a study. Alright? Let me pray for us and we'll wrap it up. Father, again, I thank you for this chance to come. And the reason I thank you is because it's about you. It's not about us. It's not about me. Lord, it's about you and you love us. And you let us get, a, get to be a part of what you've had planned all along. Father, we're sitting here studying something that was written down 1900 years ago. Yet we're excited because we know it's alive. We know it's real. We see it happening. And Lord, we're blessed to live at this time in the church age because a lot of things that people like even Luther uh, tried to understand make so much more sense now because we see that there actually is a nation of Israel again. And uh, the world is trying to deal with how to make peace. And Lord, there's a lot of stuff happening right now that all of a sudden is lining up with the book of Revelation. Father, may we be able to be here and to put it to heart so that we won't be panicked and scared when uh, the guns start blazing and the guys with the masks show up around the train because we know how it's all going to play out. Father, thank you for the fact that you gave us this revelation so we'll know what's going to happen. Thank you. Help us to see and apply it in peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.